Hey everybody, it is episode 66 of the Running Rogue podcast. This is Chris joining you from Austin, Texas. Steve is with me piping in from Colorado. Hey Steve. Hello podcast world. As always, we're excited to be coming at you today with more listener questions. We've had a few of these episodes now. This will be our third bringing listener questions, but we kind of get a steady diet of emails now from you and we really appreciate that. And so we're going to be recapping some of those emails and going through your questions and answering them live on this episode. One of them is actually more of a feedback point, Steve. So we'll get to that, which will be interesting. But we've got everything from, you know, talking about statement of purpose in your questions to how should I train for a 5K after doing a marathon to what to do about cramping in races. So. Lots of interesting things to go through. We'll get to that in a second. As we always do, we're starting with current events. And we've got three big ones from this past weekend, Steve. The US 15K championships on the road happened this past weekend at the Gate River Run in Florida. And as usual, Molly Huddle got the win <laughs> for her for her 26th US title. And her first 15K championship title but she is a veteran of winning these types of road races she beat jordan hasse by 50 seconds and molly seidel by about a minute and a half so you know they were pretty close together through the first 5k and then molly steadily pulled away over the last 10k in this one to do as she does win these kinds of races now, of course, the speculation is what does this mean about Boston since Jordan and Molly will be going head-to-head there in April on the 16th. What do you think, Steve? What does this mean? It doesn't mean anything. It means that Molly Huddle beat Jordan Hesse over 15K on that given day. That's what it means to me. I think uh, you know, you and I had, had talked um, earlier in the week about this, and we both were, I think, generally in agreement that uh, – you know, Hesse ran a min- almost a minute faster, I think like 50 seconds faster than she ran last year. Um, and so she, that for her, she's got to be looking at that and saying, I'm ready to go. Also read a re- I also read sort of a, found somewhere, something that uh, her coach, Alberto Zalazar said, uh, he said that she, uh, that he told her not to go with Molly when Molly made the move. Now, of course, that's not Jordan saying it. That's her coach who may be playing mind games with people or whatever. But um, I do think it's pretty telling. And it didn't look like like Huddle just like Huddle just crushed Hesse. It looked like Hesse just stayed in her mindset and her mode and, and, and kept clicking. And again, to be 50 seconds faster than she was last year really means that I know that Hesse is in good shape. Now, of course, Molly beat her by nearly a minute. So there's, there is that. Molly's also run a pretty darn fast marathon. But I just think I don't think it, I don't think that this this at least tells me that the two of them are on par. I think Jordan probably I would give her the lean at this point in time in terms of Boston. But of course, we haven't even talked about the one person who we probably both you and I would consider the favorite, which is Shalane. So who has been laying low since those early three Ks that she ran earlier in the year. So, um, Chris, I don't think it really means that much. I think it's just an indicator that Molly won on this given day. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, it's no surprise to me. Huddle is is fast over short distances. We know that. She destroyed Jordan in the Houston half. 
you know, to me, this says, given Hase's improvement over last year, it says that her training is going really well. She obviously intentionally didn't put her nose in for the win this round. And that's okay. That was a part of their strategy. I think it tells me, given the fact that she's only 50 seconds off, I think it tells me that when it comes to Boston Marathon time, she's going to be ready. And I, I think it actually says more that Hase is in a good spot and probably exactly where she wants to be for Boston than anything else. And, you know, with Molly, I wonder, is she still too sharp? You know, we yeah. know that a fast half or in this case, 9.3 mile race doesn't necessarily translate to a fast marathon. And so, you know, I wonder if she's still too sharp and maybe hasn't done enough to extend herself for 26.2. Whereas we know Jordan's been doing that work. So we'll see, but I think it, for me, it says Hase is in a good spot and likely probably ahead of where Molly is as it relates to marathon training, but it's obviously going to be exciting leading up to Boston coming up and we'll be doing a full preview show on that for sure. You mentioned Shalane. She was a featured in the runner's world this month. There was a feature article on her and they had an interview talking about Boston and she talked a little bit about her decision not to retire after New York. And the way she made that decision was by visualizing how she would feel calling Boston from the booth in April, <laughs> watching Molly and Jordan and Desi battle it out with the best in the world. She, she tried to go through how she would feel in that situation and she felt like, if I was in the booth and not on the starting line, I would have made, I would regret it. <laughs> and so that was sort of how she made the call. And now she's you know excited, obviously, to be on the starting line. And she talked about how, you know, she doesn't feel pressure going into this because it's sort of a bonus. She got her major. She doesn't feel like she has to run Boston that she gets to. She wants to do it. So that's a perfect spot to be in for Shalane. Yeah, I agree. I think they think it's going to be. I mean, Chris, I think we've already been talking about this Boston more than we've talked about any other race ever. But guess what, listeners? You're probably stuck with us continuing to talk about it as we get more and more intel over the next couple of weeks. So So then on the men's side in the 15K, as it has been recently in men's races, it was the U.S. Army show with the Scott Simmons group getting three out of the top four. Leonard Career again with the win now in yet a different distance. He won over Sam Chalanga, his teammate or training mate, by nine seconds. They were both in the low 43s. And then, you know, Martin, I don't even know how you say his last name, but he here, Martin here, here, I think. Here. Syracuse yeah. alum was on the NCAA championship Syracuse team from 2015. Now trains with NAZ Elite, although he is actually in a first year med student training remotely with Ben Rosario and crew from Philadelphia at Thomas Jefferson University. Pretty cool story, you know, to be doing that in your first year as a med student to get third here. I think he was also fifth at U.S. Cross and was one that made an early move there. So pretty cool to see Martin here getting in the mix when really he's got no business competing with the, those three Army guys. But uh, Emmanuel Bohr rounded out the top four there with his teammates career in Chalanga in the top two. So I mean, that's a big same. race for Martin, Chris, because he, I mean, I think he beat 
I beat. I think he beat Ryan Vale, who's the next non-Kenyan-born athlete, right? I think he beat him by yeah. almost a minute or so. So, and Ryan Vale is no slouch. Now he's probably Ryan's in marathon training for sure. But it seems to me like Martin is um, somebody for us to keep our eyes on in the future, um, because you know sometimes what happens to these college athletes is. They're really a guy like this. Maybe maybe the 10K was the fastest he was really able to do. I don't have any research on this guy. I've never really paid that much attention to him, but I probably should go back and do a little homework now. But he seems it could be that you know sometimes these guys they're better at the half and the full marathon distance and the 10K distance just this is not their cup of tea. So it'll be interesting to see over the next couple of years what happens with Martin and how much better he gets. But it isn't a really cool story. Yeah, he finished ninth at NCAA's cross country when they won the team title in 2015, but he was only the third Syracuse athlete in that race. Justin Knight was fourth there to lead their team. So, you know, he had solid college results, but nothing crazy. And yeah. anyway, just cool and interesting to see him. He, he got into med school. He deferred for a year, went to train in Flagstaff with an AZ elite and Ben Rosario, and then could only defer his his med school for a year so he started last fall at yeah. Thomas Jefferson still still is training remotely with those guys but I know how hard it is to do anything while you're in med school having seen my wife go through it so props to Martin and congrats on hanging with the big boys there that's pretty awesome I don't know if you know there's a little Texas connection if you noticed recently but uh but Craig Lutz is now working, running with NAZ Elite remotely. I think he moved to Santa Barbara, California. So that's that, that's an interesting that they're allowing those athletes to uh, be on the team and be coached remotely. Um, that's a really good sign for that program that they feel comfortable with their athletes and comfortable with the coaching that they can do it um, from a distance. It's a that's yep. that's not a negative in my opinion. That's a big positive. Uh, it's a good thing for those athletes and the coach. Yeah, and that's a group to watch for sure because you've got Stephanie Bruce in that group. You've got Kellen Taylor in that group, both doing big things at the marathon distance for women. And I believe they got Janet Bauckham, I want to say, recently joined that yeah. group. She so, might have. You know, she's always run on her own. I don't know if – yeah, she usually is run on her own. Her husband has coached her mostly, but – I'm not sure how that's playing out, what's going on there. Maybe they decided that's the best thing for them. I know that Janet's been in Flagstaff for a while. Yeah. So anyway, so cool things going on with that group and and we'll see we'll see more from them, I'm sure. Now the sec- second thing, so that's US fifteen K champs. We've got to also talk about Galen Rupp's big PR in the half marathon in Italy. He was running in Rome, ran a fifty nine forty seven to get under 60 minutes for the first time in the half. Now it's a point to point slightly net downhill race. So it doesn't, so it's not eligible for record keeping purposes, but he was only four seconds off of Brian Hall's American record in the half 59 43 that Hall ran in Houston back in the day. And, you know, he did a, a half before I believe it was Chicago in one Oh two on yeah. a flat course. So this has to tell you that Rupp is feeling good and sharp for his for his race. And and Salazar said after this one too that even though it was net downhill, I guess the conditions weren't ideal in terms of wind and temperature. So Salazar was equating this to equivalent an equivalent performance on a flat course. 
you know, again, co- you got to take the coach's thoughts with a grain of salt there, but it tells you that Rubs fit. Yeah, I, I don't think there's any doubt that he's fit. <laughs> and but we know he's got to he's got to go up against Jeffrey Carrillo in, in Boston, so it's going to be interesting for sure with those two guys going head to head again. All right, so that's the the Rupp story. Also, I think Jordan Hesse is going to be running in the World Half Championships coming up. So she's still got another big prep race coming up before Boston. I think that may be this weekend. So it'll be interesting no, to see what No, it's the 24th, Chris. I think it's the 24th okay. next Saturday. Yep. Okay. Yeah. So, so that's coming up, which will be pretty interesting to see what she tries to do there. Yeah, we'll need to do a little preview of that race, I think, a short preview for that race. Probably not yeah. an episode, separate episode, but certainly one that uh, um, where we can talk about. I'm interested to see who's going to be on the starting line of that ra- of those races. It's, there's a lot of, a lot of big names, and um, uh, I think it's interesting that they're going to have Jordan run three halves in basically three months, two of them in like three within three weeks. So they're really confident where she's at right now. They must be trying to get her to the position where she's able to get a little more racing and to make some race decisions. I'll be surprised if she lets the pack go in this one. I bet you she'll try to run this one hard as, as close to a win as she can. Yep. So that's the story on the half. And then the last thing we got to talk about before we jump into our questions is NCAA indoor championships happened. This past weekend, we won't go into all of the races, but a couple of highlights that I wanted to cover and see, we'll see if you have any. Chris Schweitzer finished with wins in the 3K and 5K to get her fourth and fifth NCAA titles. She's now won three consecutive NCAA championships in the 5K, with, with this being her back-to-back indoor 5K championship, and she also won outdoors last summer. So she'll be going for double back-to-backs in the outdoors coming up here in June. So huge win for her. She's from the University of Missouri, only a junior, has also won an NCAA championships in cross country. So, you know, has other results that would indicate, you know, that she's she's capable of doing this again. And in this race, the 5K in particular, and really the 3K as well, she basically just ran everybody off of her wheel and never looked back. Yeah, she's really impressive. She's, you know, when she came out of the blue a couple years ago, everybody was like, what the heck? Um, I actually know her coach decently well. He coached Mary Goldcamp, who ran in our pro, in my, in my uh, post-collegiate group for a little while. Um, you know, he, he, he was at Bradley when Mary ran for, for him. And now um, he's out at Missouri and doing amazing things. And, and she's running incredibly well. You, she just has. You can tell she has the the mind for it, Chris. She knows she can run from behind or from the front any way that she wants to, and she can just tell she's got a whole lot of confidence when she's racing too, which is um, which is really interesting. It kind of raises this interesting question as to you know as we're watching these collegiate athletes, who can we hang our hat on that might turn into pro athletes that we can follow at the at the us and and world championship and olympic level because when you look back at the history of top distance runners and i'll use two examples here shalane and molly huddle you know they had very different college results and experiences shalane's a 
two-time NCAA cross-country champion, so had the pedigree as a Tar Heel at UNC. And on the other side, Molly, who was a Notre Dame graduate, finished second at the 5,000 at the NCAA Outdoor one year, but never had an NCAA title and yet now has 26 U.S. titles. And so you have sort of this mix. And then if you go back to even Des Linden, who was at Arizona State, I mean, she was barely even an All-American there and really had no accolades otherwise to speak of before she came on as a strong global marathon champ, you know, competitor. So having coached it at the collegiate level, Steve, what does it take for an athlete to have success in NCAA level to then carry that forward as a pro athlete? Uh, you know, Chris, I don't really know. <laughs> I mean, there are so many different storylines. I think really what it takes, I mean, I'm being facetious when I say I don't know. I, I have some ideas. The first one is, number one, you need a good support structure that allows you to um, to be in a place where you can train consistently, get the work done that you need to get, and still be balanced in life and doing other things. I think that's really crucial and key. I also think we see a lot of success with athletes that keep continuity or as much continuity as they can with their coach that they have in, high, in college, or they quickly find a coach that they stick with over a long period of time, and they don't jump from program to program trying to figure out who might make them best. I think that's crucial. You know, That sort of goes back to our long-term focus on consistency and how crucial consistency is um i think you know as i mentioned about martin here or however you say his last name sometimes it's that you know like the race distances that are for the collegiate athletes are not really long enough or they are run in a different manner than you might expect for a, a, a pro type race or a pro level race so i also think some of the other things are maturity um or even how hard uh, somebody's school schedule was while they were in, in, in college. You know, I had athletes that I coached in college who were nursing students, and they, they had a really, really hard time being able to find a good balance, um, depending on where they were at. And maybe if some of those had run post-collegiately, they would have done better, you know. I think there's a lot of different factors that play in. But the key ones there, as I said, are um, – you know, having cons- consistency and continuity with the coach, um, having the kind of support structure that allow you to be really successful. And then also it's like people who are willing to, to take a little bit more time out of their life to get focused on their running. Um, so, you know, it's a, uh, I would tell any athlete that came out of college though, as long as they were at a re- decent level, as long as they had qualified for the NCAA championships a few times, maybe once or twice, I would think that they would have a chance to be competitive at post-collegiately. Now, what that really means is hard to say. That wouldn't mean that they would have Molly Huddle's type of success. But I do think that it really is that sort of decision-making and wanting it really badly and willing to do the things necessary after they get out of college that will allow them to be good. Now, on the flip side of that, Chris, I think a lot of people who had success in college, some of those things don't play out or they are – they are they switch programs they switch coaches they they don't have that continuity and it creates more problems for them so you know there's a wide variety of different reasons but those are the ones that i would suggest probably are most crucial and critical um for success and for those who don't see success i think one observation for me is just it seems like those that have success are able to really have a crystal clear reason for doing it that goes beyond because a lot of 
successful runners at an early age tend to struggle after they lose the support system because they lose that really rigid, you know, college coaching support system because perhaps they're doing it because they were good at it and they were always good at it. And then they had this three season, you know, cross indoor outdoor cycle that was kind of always giving them an incentive, a carrot, a potential reward system to stay in the game. But when you lose that and you move to a post-collegiate environment, you have to decide that you want to run for other reasons beyond just having that carrot there. And so it seems like the ones that have success are able to kind of translate and have a purpose for their running that extends beyond just getting those medals or podium finishes or whatever it may be that you see in college. But who knows? I'm not an expert on these things, just an observation. So the other result I've got to mention that this isn't from the distance events, but Sydney McLaughlin, who we've talked about on this show, she was the 16-year-old 400 hurdler at the 2016 Games, is now racing as a freshman for the University of Kentucky. She broke the world junior record to finish second in the 400. She also set a meet record as well and would have had the meet record had she not been beaten by Kendall Ellis from USC, who was running in a different heat and ultimately beat her on time. 50.34 to 50.36. So, you know, had she been in that heat, perhaps Sydney would have gotten the win and the collegiate record. But as it was, she finished second overall in the 400, got the world junior record for the flat 400 indoor, and shows that she's definitely going to be a force to be reckoned with as she progresses towards the 2020 games. Yeah, it's not even her event. <laughs> right. She I mean, it's her distance. Yeah. It's her distance, but not her event. <laughs> yeah, she did say she will be going back to the hurdles for the outdoor season. So so that'll be interesting to see. So keep following Sydney McLaughlin. She's definitely a name to watch as we in the sprints as we head towards 2020 games. Anything else from the NCAA indoors, Steve, that you wanted to call out? Um, just from the sprints perspective, I mean, the, the amount of the, I mean, Houston had a couple athletes do incredibly well, broke American records, broke world, the four by four broke a world record, which is really cool to see. Um, they broke that record that you and I talked about from Poland who ran it at the world, at the, uh, world champs. Um, so yeah, it was, a it was, it was really surprising to see that level of, um, just the athletes showing up at that level. I think what we're seeing across the board is what happens at the collegiate level is lifting the game for everybody who's post collegiate and looking at world titles. And, you know, the NCAA championship indoor meet and outdoor meet is one of the best meets in the world every year, regardless of the fact, you know, regardless of anything else. So um, great results there and, and, and interesting the way that all played out. Yep. And a reminder to all of us that the NCAA system, even though sometimes flawed, is one of the best development systems in the world for track and field, that's for sure. Okay, so let's talk listener questions, Steve, as we jump in. And we're going to start with a, sort of a feedback point, more of a kind of point of feedback on our statement of purpose discussions with some kind of questions embedded. This This comes from Travis, who actually lives in Austin, who works here as a trainer and also a coach. He's a certified personal trainer and and does and a trainer in the Olympic lifting world, but also does a little bit of running coaching as well. So he kind of called us out a little bit 
on our Statement of Purpose series that we did with Lee, Amanda, and Greg. And so I'm going to read his uh, his question here. He says, when it comes to your question, what is your statement of purpose? I feel like the two of you need to go back and evaluate your statement of purpose. What are you actually <laughs> What are you actually looking for? Personally, I agree with the two interviews from the first episode. When I hear what is your statement of purpose, I hear either why do you train or why do you compete? And as they answered these two very different questions, your immediate follow-up was no. When you're in the throes of the hardest part of the competition, usually mile 22, 23, what is your statement of purpose? That doesn't even compute, he says. And he, he kind of goes on with an analogy where he's talking about golf. And he says, if I were to use this in a golf situation, I might ask somebody, why do you golf? Which is equivalent to, why do you train? Then the next question might be, why do you compete in golf tournaments? Which is sort of this question of, why do you compete in running? And then his third question there is, when when you address the ball, what is your swing thought? Which he equates to you know, how you might push through in a tough spot in your race. And so... He says, during competition, when you're riding the cutoff and every shot has to be the right shot, when you address the ball, what's your swing thought? When you're in the grind of competition, mile 22, how do you keep yourself in it mentally? And he highlights, don't get in your head. The question is not why. The question at mile 22 is how. And keep it simple while you're in the act. So he kind of goes on to question us telling people to contemplate or think about their statement of purpose at mile 22 of a marathon. So with that as backdrop, Steve, there's kind of two embedded questions there. One is, what do we really mean by that question? Why do you run? Or what is your statement of purpose for running? And is it fair to divide that as he has and as Amanda Lee did into kind of different sub-questions? And then secondly, his kind of second part of that question is, should you be thinking about this in mile 22 or 23 of a marathon? What do you think? Um, you know, I think there's some reasonable critique there. Um, easy to say in a catbird seat while we're, you know, working through it with those individual athletes. A lot of what we do with our individual athletes on statement of purpose is try to feel out the energy and the space and the sort of feedback loop that we're getting from our athlete or athletes when we're doing these statements of purpose. And, um, you know, Chris, we had not met those three athletes that we did those statements of purpose with. We had not seen them face to face prior to doing that. And we were still kind of working through, um, the best way to approach it with those athletes. So I still think that, um, both those ways of looking at it are reasonable, but mostly what you and I were doing was feeling out the situation, trying to determine the best point of attack and how to really get after the the nuts and the bolts of what that individual athlete needed. Also, um, that email, in that email, um, what was the gentleman's name again? The Travis. Travis um, did make a statement to the effect of we were pushing the argument a little bit, like pushing them instead of letting waiting to get the answers that we were looking for. And I think that that's a pretty valid, um, a really pretty valid point just from the standpoint of you don't, I really wouldn't, that's not something I would think that would be optimal. When I read that email from him, I, I took that as a positive criticism. I sort of said that that's, I could learn from that. But I also defend our reasoning for that 
because of not having met these athletes and worked with them one-on-one and seen them in the training element like we normally do with our statements of purpose, right, Chris? So um, on those first two, on that first point, I see some points to it. I don't always, I don't completely agree with him. I think that we did a pretty darn good job on that episode, um, but I can see where he might have had some critiques. On the second point about whether or not statement of purpose is really appropriate at mile 22, I wonder if Travis has run a marathon at a command performance level. And I have a strong feeling that he hasn't um, because I think that if he had, he would know that that's exactly what goes through your head at that moment. And you need the ability to, uh, to have a way to get yourself out of the negative loop, feedback loop that is happening at that point, no matter what. You know, his analogy with golf is really – um, not apropos in my opinion. Um, what happens when you're running a command performance marathon and what's happening maybe in the same amount of time in, in playing a, a, you know nine holes of golf or 18 holes of golf? Chris, I just don't see them as being apples to apples. Um, and I also think that I don't I, I am 100% confident that an athlete who has worked through his state his or her statement of purpose and has a created a mantra that is indicative of that and that's in fitting with that will be able to reach down into that place where they need to at mile 22 and answer the questions about why they don't want to why would they want to carry on why do they want to get this accomplished um, I stand 100% behind the reasoning and the process that we use for that. So maybe I'm not reading Travis's question right, but I think he, I would challenge him. And first thing I would say is, have you run one of these? Have you run one yourself? Because anyone who has knows that the difference between 22 miles and trying to get in the golf swing are two completely different things. (laughs) I said that as nicely as I could. Anyway. I think you're right about that. Because I would have liked to have said that's fucking bullshit. But anyway, <laughs> on his on his first point, I think it's a fair critique. We, but I also would say we're probably intentionally being a little bit vague with our questioning on that, because you know why do you run is a bigger question that contains, I think, generally the answer. Why do you train for a specific goal? And I think sometimes you have to ask the first question to get to a better answer on the second question. Sometimes you have to ask the second question first to get to a better answer. Ultimately what we're trying to find out and maybe it's a fair point that we need to learn as it relates to applying some of this statement of purpose stuff. We need to learn how to hone that question so that somebody who wasn't necessarily listening to us or who pick up, picked up something and read it from us could really get to what we're trying to get to. And I think that's fair. And and ultimately what we're trying to find out is why do you compete in running for a certain goal? Right. Yeah. And so, yeah, that's the more specific question, but sometimes you have to work through those other bigger questions to get to what really matters. And with Lee and with Amanda, particularly you know, we were trying to, we were pushing them a little bit to try to get to what matters. And so we were trying to call bullshit on the stuff that didn't matter. And as a result, you kind of have to navigate the bigger question, the more narrow questions, some side questions that we brought in in order to really get to an answer that means something. And that's what we were ultimately trying to do. And I think, but I think it's fair to say we could do a better job at refining that question. So somebody 
Don't you think we would have had that question um, better, more appropriate for the athlete if we had worked with the athlete, even for uh, if you'd worked with them for a month or two months? Not necessarily. I mean, because honestly, like, I don't actually care that we're not being that specific. I mean, when I ask my runners that, I'll, I'll usually start with the question, why do you run? I'll get some answers and then I might, you know, then follow up with specific questions to try to understand how that relates to their specific goal that we've been talking about or that I know about already. But I, I kind of generally like the vagueness, the vagueness of the approach because it gets you to an, it gets an athlete talking about a variety of different things versus honing in too quickly on the thing they think that matters. So you know, personally, as it apply, as it relates to applying this stuff, when it's you and I talking to somebody, I don't really care if we're that specific or not, to be honest, because we're going to get there. I think we're going to get to what we think matters no matter what. But I think more about that person who might be listening to us or, you know, trying to follow along on their own without having us to push them. You know, how do they know if they're getting to the right, you know, kind of answer for them? And that's where I think the more specific question matters. Yeah, I, I guess I guess I just see it a little bit differently. I'm not saying that I disagree with you because I think I can go any I can come at it vaguely. I can come at it forcefully, but I do think we were we hadn't had very many individual one on one. We had had no individual one on one conversations with those athletes that we did those with, which is a little bit unusual. So um, the other thing I think too, Chris, is something you've heard me use this quote many times, but I also think this statement of purpose, um, no matter what happens, if it's real, it can take the pressure. Right. So that is probably a process that we got to brass tacks with those with those different interviews. But really, they're they're still we know because we're talking with them as um, we're coaching them over the next couple of weeks with the podcast group. And we're soon to be done with that group. But we're they're they're working through whether it can take the pressure in a training and racing environment. So um, anyway, I again, I agree with you. The first point, I do believe Travis had some good arguments and some ways we could approach it in a little bit less regimented and maybe a little bit more open way that could be more beneficial to other people. So you and I both giving him um, a a tip of the hat. As it relates to golf, I completely agree with you. That's an absurd analogy because when you're in the middle of a golf tournament, you're trying to control your emotion. It's about being calm and collected and smooth. It's not about a fight, a visceral physical fight. I read this book this past, well, really, the early part of this week called Deep Survival by Lawrence Gonzalez. Really fascinating. Yeah, I've read that one. Really fascinating. It's a great book. Yeah, about basically the science the science, and also sort of the, the subjective elements of survival and you know how do accidents happen and who survives and who doesn't. Particularly in this case, he uses a lot of wilderness survival situations. And one of the themes that comes out for those that survive intense, you know, wilderness survival situations are those that have a reason to live. And, and I, you know, I would equate running a marathon more to surviving in, in that type of context than I would to playing golf, where we're not asking you to have an existential crisis in the middle of your marathon at mile 22. That's not what we're asking, Travis. We're hoping that people going into the race have a clear sense for their statement of purpose, have translate that into mantras that matter a few words or a simple phrase that will connect them very quickly to the reason why they're suffering 
so that they can fight through that pain. And yes, there's a place for what you describe as a swing thought where in that race or even in that moment, you might be thinking about your breathing and your heart rate and your rhythm and your arms and shoulders and hands and face and everything I've described in some of our discussions about relaxed running. You might be doing that, but you also want to be connected to the reason you're there because otherwise it's just going to be easy to give up and quit when it matters, when the pain is that intense. So completely agree with you there, Steve. I don't think the golf analogy is appropriate and and I'm still, and I would still say that you want to have a crystallized mantra that you can use that connects your statement of purpose at the end of a marathon so that it means something in that moment. It's worked for me many times in these types of situations. So we're sticking with our guns on that one. All right, we'll go to the next question. This one is from Chris Richardson. He's from Scotland. Thanks for your question, Chris. He is training for the London Marathon in April, Steve, and then is following up with a 5K in Glasgow in July, trying to get a 5K PR after hopefully running a marathon PR at London in April. And his question basically is, you know, how do I extend my marathon training to run a fast 5K in the summer? He says, ask things like, should I drastically cut my mileage or should I keep it up on the basis that miles matter? What sort of mileage would you recommend? And should I be replacing the mileage with an extra speed session? Would you really hammer strides in 200 reps or are, are the longer reps still important? You know, we do a program here at Rogue called PR for 5K, 10K that extends our Austin athletes that have their Austin marathon or half marathon in April, or sorry, in February through to the cap 10K and to some other spring 5Ks and 10Ks in May here in Austin. So we're definitely a believer that you can extend a good marathon cycle into a good 5K cycle. But what tips would you have for that, Steve? Well, you know, it's just, just, just for the normal caveats, just like probably every doctor says, you know, go see your doctor. Don't listen to what I'm saying. There are a couple of things that I think are crucial to say off the bat, which is number one, we don't know. I'll be giving you some advice, but I don't really know what your weekly mileage is. I don't know what your marathon training looks like exactly. I don't know if you have 5K, 10K sort of already going on in your program, like we recommend usually when we discuss our training. But given, I'll just assume that um, you, do, you're have, in a good I spot. I do have some of those stats. This is a, this is a high okay. mileage fellow. He's running 90 miles a week, doing uh-huh. one speed session a week in a long run, and doing a couple doubles a week to get his mileage in. Okay. So, and then I would say basically, I, I would re, not, first thing I would do is drop your long run and not run longer than 14 to 16 miles. That's the most important thing I think is crucial. You, there's no need to um, working on extending your run, your your marathon distance. And it's my opinion that we, I don't know what the number is, but I do, I do try to limit the number of 20 plus or 18 plus mile runs that my athletes do unless we're in the heart of marathon training season. So I would 14 to 16, I would continue to do some quality workouts in my long runs. Um, it's probably where I would start to do my tempos and probably do most of my tempo work in the context of my shorter long run. And then I would work on a healthy dose of um, 
5K and 10K training. I would also make sure that I did some workouts that were 3K based so that the athlete has the ability to go faster than their than their 5K pace. Um, in the case of this athlete, I probably would refrain from doing any 1500 meter or mile work unless it was more along the lines of, you know, four or five times a quarter at your at your mile pace, something that will help sort of fine tune what you're doing, extend your range of motion, allow you to get into a little bit of anaerobic debt, but make sure you have a good bit of recovery after it and make sure that you don't hurt yourself. Someone who's a marathoner who gets into the 5K training can sometimes overdo it, Chris, where they run too fast, too quickly with too little rest and they end up hurting themselves. So, um, but I would still, but I do think a little bit of that work is good, but a, but a healthy dose of 3K work. And by that, I would mean once every two to three weeks, I would do a, a 3K workout. And what would a 3K workout be? Basically, you want to take your, if you go to McMillan, site that we recommend all the time. It'll give you your equivalency time for your marathon and your 5k and your 10k and everything else. You can use that equivalency time to find out what your 3k is as well. And it means doing some workouts that consist of about two miles or 3000 meters worth of work. They're usually shorter. Christie's are usually 800, 600s or 400s, and they should be running your 3k pace and you should run them with as little recovery as you can but still being able to finish the workout through to the end. So let me give you an example. If I had an athlete that was going to be doing some 3K work and I was putting in a couple of workouts for them, I might start them with some 800-meter reps at 3K pace. So eight hundred that would be a probably somewhere between uh, – you know, I'd probably do somewhere between uh, four and five of those, maybe probably four 800s, and then I would do them with about uh, – probably a two minute to three minute recovery if I could. If my athlete was struggling really badly, I might give them a two to three, maybe even a four minute recovery um, for that. So that's, you know, four, 800 is not very much volume, but the paces are going to feel very fast. Um, if I thought an athlete, like in this case, or an athlete who is um, more marathon based and has been a high mileage athlete, I might ask them to do maybe eight 400s first at those 3K paces and then graduate to the four 800s. Um, but there's a lot of different ways you can cut up that workout, but make, making sure that there's some 3K pace work done at least once a month will make a big, big difference in this athlete being able to take advantage of that long run, I mean, of that mileage that they've built. Do not forget your half marathon pace, whether you're doing it in your long run or whether you're doing it in your weekly workouts, remembering to continue to do Threshold work, tempo-paced work, half-marathon goal-paced work is really crucial throughout the entire cycle and should never be gotten away from at any point in your training cycle. If you're building you know, two-week cycles or three-week cycles, you would want to be being sure that you have a half-marathon type workout in there. And then a good judicious amount from then on, it's 5K and 10K pace work, work trying to figure out what you're good at, what you're not good at, and um, stretching yourself a little bit. So, you know, that's a really big question he asked there, and I covered a lot of ground. What would you also say, Chris, or what would, is there anything there that you would refine or that you disagree with? Well, one thing I would add to it is that, first of all, you have to make sure you recover after London. And, and I would say you have to do a proper marathon recovery as if you had nothing beyond. <laughs> and so, you know, I usually give my athletes a three-week marathon recovery rebuild to get back to normal mileage. And I think you're going to want to take that and 
and embrace it. Obviously, you know, you can get back to running during that period, but don't do any crazy rigorous workouts until after that three week period. And, you know, Steve's, your recommendation is usually that first week is kind of a free week, you know, do what you feel like, but don't do a lot. Second week, you can go back to about 50% of mileage of your normal mileage levels. Third week, 75%. Fourth week, if everything's going well, you can kind of get back to normal mileage levels. And I would still follow a plan like that to get proper recovery. Otherwise, you're going to get injured once you get into this 5K specific work and you're not going to be able to take advantage of the base that you have built from it. So that's my first point is take that proper recovery. And it's going to you're going to feel initially like you might be losing some of your mojo, but that's okay. That's a part of the recovery process. It's a part of the process of your body sort of exhaling post-marathon and getting ready to roll again. And then after those three weeks, then jump into that 5K specific block. And you don't need a traditional base phase because you've, you'll, you'll have had that and built that through the marathon cycle. So really, you're just doing a 5K specific training, kind of race pace training block after that where... As you said, Steve, you want to mix in a, a range of paces. Don't neglect your tempo work, but really get to some of those sharpening workouts that you mentioned. So that's all I would have. Yeah, I do think uh, the other thing is um, is to be sure, Chris, that that this listener is also conscious of their of what we like to talk about with the eighteen you know, having a long view of things and where this 5k fits within the context of that and how soon he'll get back. So you, there is a little bit of more nuance there that might be in play if he was going to run a half marathon um, a little bit later than that, or a marathon a little bit later, you know, we did, we, that, that would be, some of that is needs to be addressed a little bit, but I don't know that it would really change that much what we're talking about. Yep. So, there you go, Chris. Good luck to you. And if you have other questions and follow up, send them over. Now we're going to to a question from Jeremy. We've talked we've talked actually about Jeremy before. We we gave him a shout out during our episode fifty. Steve, he had won. He's one who had emailed us about his first marathon in Richmond last fall, where he ran a three sixteen. Essentially, oh, yeah, uh, using some of our podcast tips to get him ready for that race. Now he's gearing up for a half marathon in April. Coming up here in a couple weeks in Raleigh. It's a rock and roll half. He's he's went from averaging 45 miles a week or so in his Richmond cycle to now he's averaging 53 miles a week on six days a week running. He says he's loosely following the Hanson's advanced half marathon plan. He's been doing quality on Tuesday, Thursdays, long runs of up to 14 to 16 on Saturdays. He wants to be in shape to run a 130 or 132 half in April. His PR for the half from 2016 is 136. He says he's been healthy and injury-free. And you know, he doesn't think he's still building his weekly mileage. Um, ultimately, his goal is to qualify for Boston in the fall with where he needs to get a 305 or faster to guarantee a spot in Boston. And so... His basic question is, am I anticipating too much too soon? You know, I guess he's asking basically, am I being greedy with these goals here? Uh, and I'll start with this one, Steve. I want to say, first of all, congrats, Jeremy, for keeping up the training. And thank you for keeping us posted on your progress. That's cool to see. As I think about your 316 and now a healthy cycle building up to 
the race in April. My first point, Steve, and I'd be curious to get your opinion on this is I think you can run faster than 130 in April. You know, I mean, his half is PR is already a 136. He's run a 316 marathon. He's had consistent training, been healthy, doing long runs as he should, up to 16 miles. And I actually think, Jeremy, you need to be more aggressive in Raleigh and really go for it. And a half lends itself to taking some risks. And, you know, I'd be curious maybe to get some more information about some key workouts to see some other indicators of your fitness. But my gut just tells me that you're not being greedy enough as it relates to the half here coming up in a few weeks, Jeremy. And so, you know, my question is, could you run a 128 or a 7, 127? I don't, I don't really know, but just something tells me in my gut that you're actually going to be fitter than a 130 or a 132 for sure. And so I think this is a chance to be aggressive in Raleigh and maybe, you know, take some risks. And you know what? If it falls apart, you'll learn a hell of a lot from a race that, you know, they, where you have to suffer a little bit. But my gut tells me that even if, even if you're a little bit aggressive here, that you're going to be okay. And it's going to end up in a, in a, a even bigger PR than you might anticipate, assuming the weather's good in Raleigh. And as it relates to fall, hell yeah, man, you can run a 305 there. We're super excited about our podcast training program that will restart in May. And uh, you don't mention your fall race in here, but We'd love to get you involved with us there because I think we can get you to that 305. What do you think, Steve? No, I completely agree with you. I know my first thought was, um, again, assuming that there's been a couple of key workouts that have been done or have shown that there's some reasonable um, chance at this, I think that uh, I agree with you, Chris. I think this uh, 130, it's, well, it's not a done deal. I think it's something that is um, certainly – within the realm of possibility and it should be attempted. The good thing, you know, Chris, we had a, a, a list, one of our podcast um, training group people is running the New York city half marathon this weekend. And I don't think you, I don't, you, I, I responded to his questions right off the bat, but he asked some kind of a similar question about, he was asking how we should approach it. And I do think that one people need to realize and what our, what this listener should realize is that, you can be a lot more aggressive in your race plan and not necessarily go for a uh, what we would, might call a negative split. And you can be more aggressive and take more chances. And um, depending on what the what the terrain looks like on that course at Raleigh, um, and again, as Chris said, depending on your weather. But usually that time of year in North Carolina um, is probably pretty good. So um, I think that go for it. You should take it risk and no i don't think anybody is ever like get i mean some people are greedy right but i don't think in this case this gentleman's greedy and i do always think when it comes to training greed is a good thing assuming you give yourself a long enough time to get there and you're willing to be resilient if you fail at it and come back and be positive um about whatever happens next you know chris because that's one of the things Let's say that we say this gentleman that he can go under 130 and runs a 134 and he hurts like hell doing it. He needs to um, he needs to be re- recognized that if he does go for 130, he needs he needs to recognize that if he fails, he's got to be resilient and able to pick himself up off the ground and believe that it was worthwhile going for that goal. Yep. But I say, Jeremy, go for it. Be aggressive. Keep us posted on your result. Be curious to see how it goes for you. All right. 
next two questions, Steve, come actually from Rogue Athletes about our episode 63. And I'm going to first ask the one from my athlete. One of them's my athlete. One of them's your athlete. So we've got Gene came back with some questions on our episode 63 where we talked about master's training. And she had a few that, that and one at least a few of these will save for probably a future episode with Carmen. But one uh, in particular that I think is worth addressing with the global audience. And she says, it raises questions about the practical application of some of the suggestions, particularly how to incorporate them when you're training with a group like Rogue, i.e. you don't have a lot of flexibility to add extra recovery days because you're on a weekly cycle. So her basic question, and then she had a specific example for herself, but her basic question was, if I'm on a weekly training cycle, whether I'm following a group in person or whether I'm following an online program that might have a weekly cycle, if I'm a master's runner and I need more recovery time and more flexibility than that, like Carmen described, and she described sometimes stretching what she used to do in a week over two and a half weeks, how do you do that? You know, how do you flex it? And, and I think it's a valid question. So the first point I want to make to Gene and Steve, then I'll let you jump in is that in a lot of ways, our programming is already on a 10 day cycle. We just, we kind of cheat it and maybe it doesn't look that way, but we're on a three week cycle, right? Two ups and a down. And basically that gets us you know, two really big long runs in in a three-week period, a 20-day period. So almost like you would have if you had two big long runs on a 10-day cycle. And we have, you know, two, quali- two usually really intense quality workouts in those three-week cycles. And then, you know, one that usually has a little reduced intensity in those three-week cycles. So in a lot of ways, we're already on an extended cycle. It just looks like it's a weekly cycle because, we have to fit together, you know, against a calendar. So in some ways, you know, we're already doing at least a little bit of an extended cycle. But beyond that, I would say, you know, you have to listen to your body and then figure out which workouts in a given time period are the ones to really go to the well in and which ones you might need to either back off on. Uh, in other words, slow slow your paces, run run a pace group back, or maybe even potentially skip and run easy instead. You know, those are decisions that can be made in the context of our cycles that would approximate what Carmen's describing. Because what Carmen was describing, I mean, she used to do three workouts a week where it would be track workout, tempo run, and then, you know, some kind of quality on the weekend, sometimes within her long run. That's way more intense than what we already do, which for most most of our athletes is only two workouts a week. So we're already stretching a little bit. But even within that, you can still manage your recovery based on how much you invest in each scheduled workout. What are your thoughts? I'm, I completely agree. I, I think that uh, when it comes to I think I think the operative thing here is something that I think uh, goes back to one of our founding principles, Chris, which is you got to be able to have a good 
You have to have an ability to listen to your body and know when adjustments need to be made. And you also need to know when you've got a challenge, if you're in a cycle or if you're in a cycle where you're more tired because you're really stretching for your time goal, um, or if you're in a cycle where we're doing a lot of faster paced work and you're not very good at the faster paced work, those are things that the athlete really needs to be paying attention to and knowing their body to be sure that they're getting the adjustment and the recovery that they need. Additionally, Jean, in her case, is especially um, is especially blessed to have a coach who's willing to be able to make a shift in the programming wherever needed. Usually, Chris, I know you and I both, if we get a little bit of a heads up the night before that our athlete needs maybe some adjustments or we need to look at it a little bit differently, you and I are usually pretty amenable with that. I mean, occasionally I tell people to shut up and run, but most often I listen and then try to figure out how to make an adjustment. But if the athlete doesn't talk to me, I don't know that. You know, and so it's really key for them to be able to listen to their body and know what's going on with their body. I'm almost always in the first, in in almost always, I always want my athletes to try to show up and do the workouts that we have. Um, And I will tell you that my, because my experience as a coach is, and it gets this way more and more, that athletes are usually more afraid of my workouts than they should be. Um, And so what I'll do for an athlete in this context where Jean's talking about where maybe she's a little older and maybe she's not getting completely recovered, I'll just ask her to get started with the workout and either I'll ask her to get started with the workout um, uh, with a little more, take a little more recovery or adjust the paces or just get started and we'll do as many as we feel like doing and we'll see what happens. In my situation, more often than not, my athlete finishes that workout and is surprised and feels better afterwards than they would have before. They just needed the flexibility to know that that was okay. And then we might make maybe a little few adjustments as we're going on in the context of that workout. So I think that that's another thing is, um, as you already indicated, we are on a a, a more of a longer cycle, more 10-day cycles than most people realize. And we're also... um, And we're also trying to write programming that is a little less than absolutely cutting edge because we aren't working with our athletes in a situation of an N of one or just one one athlete one-on-one where we might be able to be a bit more aggressive. So not to say that we've watered our workouts down, Chris, but just more along the lines that we're looking at continuity, consistency, and staying healthy as paragons in the most important part of our training, not any one individual session. So um, I think that's a great question Gene asks. But I think that she's um, that there are uh, that the, the best the best thing for her to do is to listen to her body and then interface with her coach. Now, if this is somebody who's doing an online program that they're downloading, you know that's that's one of the real negatives about those kinds of programs is you don't have a a live coach who you can discuss things with. Or even, I was just talking to a very good friend of mine who has been coached. She's one of the best in the world at riding very her bike for very very long distances. She told me she's met her coach one time in the last four years of working with him. (laughs) And yet they consistently, she feels like she consistently gets all the information and all the insights that she needs to based on their relationship. So it can be done as long as the athlete feels the ability, has the ability to interface with their coach and be able to, to get help with that. So um, that's how I would address that, that question. The other thing I would say, Gene, and for anybody who has a schedule like this is that and this is something that I do now as I'm aging in this, in, you know, within your group is I'll look at the macro and circle the workouts, especially the long run workouts that I know really matter. You know, the critical two or three usually in your programming where we're doing really intense work on a Saturday. 
circle those in my head or physically on a piece of paper and know that anything around that, you know, I can potentially modify. But when it comes to that workout itself, it's time to be on, right? So make sure that you're giving yourself space around the workouts that you know really matter so that you don't go in beat up or not recovered for the workouts that you know are are going to mean the difference between hitting your goal or not. So those are a couple thoughts, but it'll be interesting. You know, we definitely need to have Carmen back on to answer some more questions. This one, this next one, Steve is from Don who actually trains in your group. And it's more of a comment than a question, but I wanted to get your thoughts on this. And he says, for me, the biggest change has been above the neck as it relates to being a master's runner, my perspective, my motivation, my purpose, all of these are significantly different than just 10 years ago. And Don is 63 as he writes this. The big transition is not when you turn 40 or 50 or become a master's runner. Master's runner, I saw the biggest change and saw it in my peers when you become a senior runner. And by senior, I mean greater than 60. There's a reason that BQ times increase in 15, not 10 minute increments for you for each age group over 60. So that was Don's comment there. And we didn't really talk about the mental side of that kind of progression from 40 to 50 and beyond. What are your thoughts for Don? I I think that he's dead on in that assessment. I think the body, we mostly see the body changes happen around 50 but I do agree, and you know, I, I coached Don, and I've I've had the pleasure of coaching Don, who's had to go through, who's who got injured um, in the in one of his last cycles, and is now back and in, is looking stronger than ever. But I do appreciate his 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 candor in that and his recognition of that. But I think mostly what happens there is just the is just mostly getting used to the fact that you're not going to run the same times that you ran before. But I don't. I, I am. I, I. I have to say this. You know, I'm not at 50 yet. I'm approaching 50, but I'm not there. And so it, it's it's maybe a bit disingenuous for me to be able to even come up with an answer for this for Don, except to say that I don't. In John, Don particularly, I don't see any change in his competitive zeal or his competitive desire. I think he's just dealing with the fallout of the times being slower than what he really wanted to do. I do think Don is alluding to a bigger question though, Chris, which is basically, okay, how do I do that? And um, that's a hard question to answer um, in a way that doesn't sound um, pat because I think what I would say is probably to be a bit harder on yourself, not in terms of not in terms of expecting to run the time, but in terms of your old expectations being reasonable anymore. There is a moment in all of our lives where we have to recognize we can't do the things we did when we were 25. And then when somebody's 60, he probably notices I can't deal with the things when I was 50. But Don probably got away with doing it when he was at 50. And he just hasn't come to grips with the fact that his body is different. But I do think that it's being it's being – it's being ruthless with yourself and saying, what is really reasonable for me to do? And then accepting it um, and, and dealing with that as a, um, a, just a fact of life in a sense. Um, hopefully this doesn't come off as me saying, you know, shut up and run. I'm not, not really trying to say that. What I'm saying is 
I appreciate those concerns, but I do know that you got you have to still continue to listen to your body, adjust the training as you need to, reassess what's reasonable that you can expect, and train for that. And but don't give yourself too many more outs because if you give yourself too many outs in terms of effort and approach and vision and determination and willingness to willingness, then you're going to go into that good night less than you really should be. And you need to stay focused and driven for the things that you want. But what those things are, I, I can completely concur that they are difficult to, to deal with. Um, as I'm making my return to running competitively, hopefully uh, I, I'm conscious of this, but I also know I'm not going to run. I'm not going to run, you know, two thirty for a marathon. There's just no way it's going to happen. What do you think, Chris? Well, you know, first of all, I cannot relate, unfortunately, Don, yet. So this is all, as you alluded, Steve, a bit of speculation on my part. But I would imagine that you're dealing with a few challenges as you start to reach those ages. One would be that just physically it becomes harder and harder to get what you used to get. Coupled with the fact that you're seeing your time slip, slip even though you're putting perhaps the same effort or more into it. But then I would also imagine that you have more and more of your friends that were in it fall away as they some succumb to inactivity, to the issues that come with age, right? So, so you're maybe starting to feel a little lonely in your pursuit as you stay in the game while others that are aging don't stay in it with you. And then you're looking around, you're around you all of a sudden uh, and you see, you know, athletes that are younger than you around you instead of athletes that all seem to be about your age. Right. So that's got to be a difficult transition too. And, you know, but at the same time, we have a lot of athletes that do it and do it well. I mean, one of the most committed athletes I have in my group, Sharon is 65 and still crushing it. She's doing Boston this year in April. And, you know, yeah, certainly she can't run the times that she used to, but she's as as committed as she has always been. And is certainly running times that she didn't think she could still be running at this point because of her commitment to the sport. I think a lot of it comes back to recognizing that your statement of purpose as you age and your purpose or goals are going to evolve. And you have to really be diligent about staying on top of the why as you as you age and maybe if you need to finding new pursuits to keep you engaged and interested whether they be different race distances different sports trying trail or triathlon or some different things some for some athletes even doing the senior games you know because as you age you can start to actually be competitive at some of these national competitions you know I know we've had rogues go and compete at the US senior games and do do pretty well. And so you can actually add some competitive fire that way against people that are of similar ages from across the country. So there's different ways to think about it, but I could say that Don's doing damn, a damn fine job at staying on it. So that's cool to see. And it's good to have him as a part of our community, but I think it's a valid point that you've got to keep that fire ignited as you age and it can only become more difficult for some. I have one more. I have one quote to share with Don and the rest of our listeners. It comes from the great Walter Payton: "Never die easy." Okay, so fight, keep fighting. Um, he meant that in the sense of not going out of bounds when a linebacker comes bearing down on you. But I think, 
as I age, that's one of the things that I, I think about all the time. And when I'm out there suffering, never die easy. Make sure that you keep bringing with it everything you have. And um, Don's definitely doing that. But I think that attitude and that approach, as long as it's balancing what's going on in the needs of the body, yep. can be helpful. So, All right. Now, last question here. As we finish up this episode, this one comes from Peter. He's... 41, ran his first marathon at Hartford in 2016 and his second at the Marine Corps a year later in 2017. He says, in both cases, I was on track to qualify for Boston until mile 20, then I absolutely imploded. I would feel good until about 13.1, then start to feel a little tired by 15, then would start getting twitches in my calves at 17. The twitches would progress to full bore cramps in my calves and then hamstrings by mile 20. My legs would lock up and prevent me from running smoothly. The last 10K would be a painful and slow death march. Mile splits would go from 705, 710 to 9 plus. I've really tried to stay on top of my hydration and nutrition and even took salt tabs during that second attempt. I'm wondering if you have any suggestions on how to deal with this issue. Is it weakness in my posterior chain? Would strength training or more long runs help? Now, we don't have any info, Steve, for reference on his long runs or his training, but those are the questions we got. So what do you think? Assuming it sounds like he's, you know, he's basically addressing the nutritional elements reasonably. You know, I, I think that so we had this period of time in our uh, American society where everybody said, don't eat salt. Salt's not good for you. Athletes need to be, should not be hesitant, especially marathoners with eating salty foods. And I think as long as you're being smart about the kinds of foods you eat and that they're, that it's seasoned appropriately and you get enough, you know, salt can come in a lot of different ways, but a lot of different, you know, sodium can come in different ways. It doesn't have to just be salt itself, but that that's one thing to be sure that you're eating a well-balanced, healthy diet and you're not shying away from that. Um, but I probably would seem to think Chris, that maybe this athlete hasn't done enough simulation workouts from a long run perspective. Um, where they have been able to work through. I, I don't. I can tell you, I had two athletes recently on my my workouts that we are doing, and we're in the, the final throws of our Boston preparation. Our athletes just told me, I don't think I can go through another twenty miler where my legs feel like they're going to be cramping. And I said to them, Well, you probably need another marathon, another marathon workout that's over twenty miles to get yourself ready for it because it's not going to go away. So, what other things can we address and can we look at in the training? So the question is, if it's happening on race day but not happening in training, then probably the training isn't at a, up to par and where it needs to be in terms of those long run workouts um, simulating what might be happening in a marathon. And that doesn't mean running 26.2 miles, right, Chris? That means just coming up with a variety of different long run workouts that will help you get to that point to where you can find out how your body's going to adapt and deal with what's going to happen late in the marathon race. And so if it's not happening in training but it is happening in racing only, then something is something's probably not right, quite right in training, unless the athlete is all of a sudden overhydrating prior to the race and flushing their system of the electrolytes that they need in the race. So those are the first things I would look at, Chris. Is the diet already have enough, 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 you know, sodium? And are you are you topped off there with your salt balances, your electrolyte balances? Number two, are your workouts simulating what's going to be happening on race day well enough so that you can be prepared and ready for that day? And number three, are you doing anything over the last 
24 hours to 36 hours prior to the race that might be shooting you in the foot and giving and, and stripping you of your electrolyte balances that are going to make it even harder to deal with. So those are the three places I would look at first, Chris, not knowing any more intel on this particular athlete. What do you think? All good points. And I think the highlight for me in there, Steve, is the daily hydration. You know, I think it's one thing to kind of do salt tabs on the day, but you want to make sure that you're getting well hydrated with electrolytes throughout your training with your daily hydration so that you're going in sort of well, swell stock, so to speak, from a sodium standpoint versus trying to catch up in the middle of the race. So that's definitely something to look at. A couple of things I would consider race plan. You know, we don't know anything about this person's race plan and how they started relative to their fitness levels. But it sounds to me, or I'm reading between the lines here to say that, you know, maybe he kind of went in straight to those 705, 710 paces to try to get his BQ and maybe got there a little too fast. And I wonder to what extent did he go too fast early? Because if you're starting to have issues at 13 or even 15, that tells me that you've already burned your matches and that you probably started too fast. Yeah. So, so my question would be to go back and listen to our, our marathon, our race planning podcast and make sure that you're planning your race accordingly to start conservatively, work down to your pace and then hold that so that you're not getting in over your skis, so to speak, too early because we know implosions happen when you do. And this, this to me is coming off a little bit like that. Maybe there's a hydration issue coupled with a starting too fast issue which is causing this mushroom cloud at mile 20. So those would be the two things I would look at in addition to your point about the long runs and making sure you're getting in the right amount of mileage, working on long run pace work and trying to prevent you know, those types of hydration issues during those long run pace work sessions. In terms of strength, you know, it can't hurt um, to do calf work, glute work, work on all the stabilizing muscles up and down the chain. You know, that stuff can't hurt, but I don't think it's probably the source of the problem. It might, you know, help you though. It might, you know, help kind of overcome the issue by giving you more strength late in these races. But, you know, it's probably not the first place I would look. All right, Peter, hopefully that helps keep us posted and, we also might suggest that you join our podcast training group so we can work with you directly on this and give you a give you some of our examples of long run pace work through that cycle, which we'll have starting up here in May. All right, Steve, there you go. Those are our questions for today. It's always fun to get these, so thanks for sending them over. You can always reach me or Steve. My email is chris at roguerunning.com. Steve's email is Steve Sisson, his full name, at roguerunning.com. So feel free to send these over. So thanks to those that did. And we'll kind of keep them. We may not respond right away, but we do keep them. And and then we'll let you know when a response is coming. So thanks to these listeners. And please do send us your questions if you have others. We will answer them on a future episode. All right. This has been episode 66 of the Running Rogue podcast. As always, you can check us out at roguerunning.com or follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at Rogue Running. Until next time, we'll talk to you soon.